원하소. As we're cultivating the four measurables, we have multiple options. That is, with a straight logic, with clear reasoning, as one again follows the implications, where might this lead? What would be? Where should this go? It would make a lot of sense to cultivate the immeasurable loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. In order to really profoundly purify your own mind from all craving, hostility, and take a good whack at delusion too, kind of soften it up a little bit before you just hammer it with vipassana. So the four measurables can be really very good friends for vipassana. You know, soften everything up. You know, punch it up a little bit. Those mental afflictions, kind of, you know, mug them. Mug them. They're not dead, but they kind of feel bad. <laughs> and when they really kind of pound in them, like, like they're feeling really wounded, like uh, 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 then just then just kill them. Bring out the sword. Bring out the sword. And kill them. This is tough talk, but this is Shandadeva talk. This is Arhat talk. The word Arhat means a foe destroyer, a, f- a destroyer of enemies. It sounds like a jihad. It is. It's a jihad against your own mental afflictions. So there's no, no question about it. Buddhism is very militant. Always has been. Always has been. Militant against mental afflictions. Whenever Buddhists are militant against Muslims or anybody else, then they're screwing up. They're a disgrace. But militant against mental afflictions? There's no question about it. Buddhism is not pacifistic. It's very violent. <laughs> very violent from the very beginning. From the very beginning, when those hosts of Maras assaulted the Buddha, the Gautama, almost to become Buddha, they assaulted him. There's this massive assault. And he conquered all of them. Every single one of them. He annihilated them all just by sitting there. <laughs> And they all wilted. They just all wilted. So following the implications of the four immeasurables. Yeah. These can be shock troops, support troops for that which is going to go in and really fight the battle and win it. And that's Shamata Vipassana. That's how you actually win the battle. It's not Vipassana alone. That's ridiculous. All these people talking momentary samadhi, momentary samadhi. Get a grip. You know, the Buddha didn't spend so much time teaching about jhana so you could skip them. So shamatha is indispensable. People can debate it, fine, but I'm not going to debate it. It's just, that just, just the way it is. You know, shamatha vipassana, come on, that's it. You need the two. You need the bodyguard and you need the minister to go subdue that prince. That was the Buddha's vach, Buddha's speech. So you can have these four immeasurables as kind of like your shock troops to come in and really soften them up. And then, as I said, it would make sense to follow these four immeasurables to the culmination, and that is your own individual liberation. There's a reason there. There's a, ration, there's a rationality. It's not crazy. You know? I'm using these four measurables to be on good terms with all sentient beings, to purify my mind so I can free my mind, get the hell out of here, and be free. And I'll be free. And so one understands that rationale. So with all the four measurables, it can be leading in that direction. Or So that's one alternative. But that's not why I'm here. Yeah, that's not why I'm here. Clearly, this is a Dzogchen retreat, so that's, that's not the option we're taking. Right? So the other option is you see all of these as kind of a drum roll for the four greats, the, four, the, the immeasurable, compa- immeasurable equanimity, the grand finale of the four immeasurables, saying, we're about to invite in the royalty. We've, created, we've pre- prepared the room. We're pre- prepared to invite the royalty. And the royalty is great compassion. And as soon as you invite the royalty in, as soon as your mind tends to great compassion, now you have no choice. Now your options are now finished. You don't have any options. Because if you follow the implication of great compassion, it leads in only one direction. You've already committed it. As soon as you step over the line, outside of the four measurables, and into just one little pinky, one little millimeter, into great compassion. Then you're on a slippery slope and there's no turning back. You cannot simply be an arhat, you have to be a jina. And a jina is a conqueror. A jina 
epithet of the Buddha, a conqueror, a victorious one. And victorious one means having gained conquest over all obscurations. And that is all mental afflictions, but also these much subtler obscurations that even an arhat has. Now, this is clearly Mahayana speak. In this Shravakayana, the Pali Canon, there's no reference to the arhats having any obscurations whatsoever. But they don't have the qualities of a Buddha. So it would kind of follow. They have something that the, they, they have something, something left over that the Buddha managed to eradicate. And that's called Snyaya Avarana, cognitive obscurations. Well, once you've stepped over the line, into great compassion, then there's no turning back. You know, unless you really just want to stop cultivating great compassion and then scurry back to your own solitary cave to become an arhat. That's nothing wrong, it's just limited. But you see the, you see the logic. This is the thing. Whether you're following scientific materialism, just follow it to a conclusion and see if you can live with it. If you're Adopting the worldview, because it's really a worldview, certainly a, a, a motivation, a heart of great compassion, then you have to follow the implications. Don't do crime stop or double think, etc., etc., on great compassion. Where does it lead you? It leads you in only one direction, but you have to follow out. What does that mean? And you'll see, we've already done it. We've been f- through the four grades. It, it necessarily leads to great loving kindness. That necessarily leads to great empathetic joy. That necessarily leads to great equanimity. That necessarily leads to the extraordinary resolve. And that necessarily leads, leads to bodhicitta. You're stuck. You have no choice. Then you have a choice to follow three countless eons following a causal vehicle. That's a choice. Or to follow a resultant vehicle, Vajrayana. Within Vajrayana, you have many choices. You know, kriya, Kriya, Upa, and so forth, different tantras all the way up to Atta Yoga and Dzogchen. So, and Dzogchen. so there are choices. But today, for those listening by podcast, for those of us here, as soon as we start sincerely cultivating great compassion, then we know we've made a mark. We've said something to the universe. This is the way I'm going which means I have to follow out implications. That is, this means I have to become a Buddha because nothing else will be true to great compassion. Right. So we turn to the liturgy, this magnificent liturgy, which begins with a question. That's the only part I'm going to comment on, and then we'll have the meditation will be very simple. I'll just basically tell you the lines of the liturgy. But the first one is awesome. And that is, why couldn't all sentient beings? be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. It should be a wail. It should be a cry. It's not a philosopher sitting on a couch musing and coming up with a really good idea. This question is coming out of great equanimity. We've been there, right? where you empty yourself out and then fill yourself with all sentient beings. And so you're saying, why can't we? Why can't we all be free of suffering and the causes of suffering? What's to prevent us? And boy, is that not a rhetorical question. Any more than when we see this Ebola virus coming and and creating so much misery and it looks like there's a lot more in store. When the medical profession asks the question, why couldn't we stop this? Why couldn't we contain this? Why couldn't we find an antidote? Because right now there's no antidote. You can bet your life that that is not a rhetorical question. That is a question that is leading to major activity. There has to be funding and so forth, and intelligence and creativity and altruism all pouring into that question. This is that kind of question. Ebola is one little virus. It's killed some thousands of people. And now we're asking the big question. Why couldn't all sentient beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering? In the same spirit same spirit. Well, there's really, for the time being, not much we can do. No, there's nothing we can do. That is, ordinary beings. Nothing we can do about sentient beings on other planets. We don't even know where they are. You know? So, if there are great enlightened beings on this planet right now, I leave them to it. I don't, I don't know the scope of what they know and they don't know. But for those of us who don't have clairvoyance, cannot, don't know which other 
world systems, throughout the, throughout the universe, throughout galaxies and so forth, have inhabited life and so forth. We just don't know anything about them. Then for the time being, there's really nothing explicit we can do for them. But we certainly know that there are sentient beings, at least animals and human beings, let alone all the pretas and you know, bardo beings and so forth, who are co, you know, co-inhabiting this world with us. But we should include. I mean, for those of us who have faith that there are beings of all of the six realms right here on this planet, parallel, you know, para- parallel frequencies, right here, there are going to be devas. Right here in Tanyapur, there are bound to be pretas. There are bound to be some bardo beings kind of cruising through, hanging out, looking, looking where to go. And so forth. The Thai people take that all seriously. It's very much part of their worldview. Sh- they know they're sharing. And before this whole Tanyapura was built, they built that statue over there, right in front of the uh, sports center. Taking this very seriously. You know, we are showing our respect with the other non-human beings who populate this. We come in peace, we're trying to do something good here, we make our offerings, we want to be good neighbors. So they're taking it very seriously. So that's good. This is this Thai country, largely a Buddhist country. That's good. But we come back to the question. And now everybody listening by podcast, well, at the very least, those beings that we are aware of, unless you have clairvoyance again, you don't know about you know, how many bardo beings are there, devas, pretas, hell beings, and so forth, and so we don't know. But for the animals and the human beings on this planet, when there's so much suffering and so much is unnecessary, then as we pose this question, why couldn't we all be free of suffering and the causes of suffering? What I'm inviting you to do when we go into silent meditation is to attend to that in layers, in layers. Okay? It'll bring much more richness, depth, and intelligence to the question and whatever comes in response to the question. So I would suggest when you raise that question, start with hedonic suffering. Start with hedonic suffering. And that's simple, something very simple, right? It's stimulus-driven suffering. Something bad happens to us. Species get wiped out. Half the wildlife on the planet gets wiped out. Uh, poverty, endemic all over the planet, including not in every rich country, but the United States is a rich country, a very rich country. We've got lots of poverty. Other more civilized, I'm pardon, I'm going to just be big, um, biased here, but other more civilized countries like Norway, they don't have any poverty at all. That's because they, they know how to distribute the wealth a bit more fairly. New Zealand has no significant poverty. Switzerland has no significant poverty. Right. That's because they're, they're, they bring more civilization. I wish the big countries would do that, but, you know, hard. But at least some are. They're setting a gold standard for us. That's a gold standard. That's how all of countries should be. You know, I just gave a few. But Switzerland, Finland, Norway, Denmark, New Zealand, so they know how. Now, of course, these countries, they're Western countries, so they're consuming more, but at least it's better than some of the massive corruption and so forth you see elsewhere. Okay, enough of that. Hedonic suffering. As we raise this question, we know what the other questions are going to be. May it be so. May I do it. May I be blessed. Right. So we know where it's going. So as we raise this question of the, you know, attending to the hedonic suffering of sentient beings, humans and animals, just for starters, at least do that that we as human species, there's no possible way we can flourish even over the next 85 years or so of this century if we keep on wiping out all the animals. What are we going to do? That, well, I know what we'll do. Then we'll start eating each other. Because there's nothing else to eat and you don't want to be a vegetarian. You start looking at Patrice. <laughs> she kind of looks tasty to me. I'm not looking at Jeannie. She's too much, too much bones, not enough flesh. But Patrice kind of not too heavy, not too skinny, like just right. Prime rib of Patrice. That's where we're going to be going, you know, literally or metaphorically. We're going to be ripping each other's throats out by the end of the century, if we ever get to 11 billion, and we've wiped out the animal species, and we've let global warming go rampant and we've emptied out the oceans of fish, etc., etc. Well, Freud saw this, Freud saw this 90 years ago, 1927, when he wrote the illusion, the, the uh, what, future of an illusion. He said, if we don't have religion, we're going to kill each other. And he didn't believe in religion. 
wonderful irony there. But he thought maybe religion could be salvaged. And then it could actually continue to save people. Because without religion, science, doesn't give any, science itself gives us no morality. Philosophers don't agree on anything. So where are you going to get morality from? You, know, you have to get it from somewhere. And historically, we've gotten it from religion. So much atrocity is in the name of religion, but you know, give it a break. If we look where we, there's been a great fusion of scientific materialism and state with military, we see the worst religious wars in, in the history of humanity. What the Soviets did to religious people throughout their country, what Mao Zedong did to religious people throughout his country, that was the biggest, those two right there, that was the biggest religious warfare in the history of humanity. And it was done by atheists. Ha <laughs> ha. Still religious warfare when you're beating up, killing, decimating all religious people, and you have your own ersatz religion. It's called scientific materialism. How these big anti-religious people overlook that staggers my imagination. They love to rant and rave about all the atrocities religion have done. Oh, give us a break. We knew that already. Have you noticed what the anti-religious people do? They kill simply more efficiently. So there's part of the problem. There's part of the problem right there. Hatred. Hatred. Hatred against people who are unlike ourselves. Hatred against anyone. But to look to feel loathing and contempt for False views is utterly endorsed in the Buddhist tradition. False views like women don't have the right to get the same amount of money for the same work. Gender bias. That's a view. Women don't really need to get education. They don't deserve education. Etc., etc. All the bigotry against women. That's a view. It's contemptible. It's to be loathed and despised. If it's helpful, ridicule it. Racism, wherever it is. Same thing. It's a view. Just loathe, despise, ridicule it, slam it, destroy it any way you can. But not the racists. Racism. Because people who hold to racist views can stop. Antisemitism is not banished. Don't kill anti-Semites. Annihilate anti-Semitism. Ethnocentricity is rampant. Extremely rampant. That's why I was just ridiculing it yesterday. We found the first evidence that there's consciousness after death. Give me a bloody break. You're living in the 21st century and you can read English? How can you say such an idiotic thing? You know, are you living under a rock? And yes, I'm going to be sarcastic, ironic, and really cont- contemptuous. But not of the journalist. But this idiotic statement. How, how can you be so bloody ignorant when there are Buddhist centers all over London, let alone the Hindu and the Taoist and so forth and so on, and you're saying this is the first evidence? Oh, come on, give us a break. This is like having religious fundamentals running in the press. We have the only way. We have the only way. You sound like an idiot. So contempt. Contempt for other cultures. Contempt for other traditions, people, and so forth. That's part of the problem. So as we envision, as we ask the question, what, why couldn't we all be free of suffering and the causes of suffering? We look at what everybody sees. We look at poverty. We look at disease. We see social inequalities, massive inequalities in terms of wealth, and so forth. But then as we raise the question, all of us, and I'm very much holding in my heart right now, the people listening by podcast, we really must know something that is true. And that is we are raising this question with millions upon millions of other people. It's not just 40 people in this room and, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000, whatever, listening by podcast. There are millions of people all over the planet raising the question, why does this suffering have to continue? Why couldn't we be free of this suffering? The treatment of girls in this school, right? The treatment of people of a darker skin in this situation. People this situation. Poverty here, etc., etc. Why couldn't that stop? Why couldn't that stop? Because it's not just all sentient beings. It's here and here and here and here and here specific, you know. Why the massive maltreatment of animals? Why for us human beings to survive? Is that really necessary? Is that really necessary? Or couldn't we still survive and not have to do that to our fellow sentient beings? You know? So there are many people asking these questions. So as we, as we ask them ourselves, then we should know that we're asking this with a chorus, that we have friends, we have co-thinkers, co- people with shared hearts, all over the world asking this. Right. And there are solutions. There are solutions. 
And so not all of us listening have the vocation or perhaps the opportunity, or either, right now, to be full-time yogis, to drop everything, social engagement, responsibilities, and so forth, go into solitude, spend your time 100% in meditation. Not all of us have that opportunity. Or yearning right now. That's fine. That's as it should be. Uh, I would not be pleased if everybody who's listening then suddenly severed all their family relationships, quit their jobs and so forth, and screwed off the caves. I said, oh, what have I done? You know? That's not my aspiration. But for those who do have, the circumstances are there, the, vocate, the aspiration is there, the outer mandala, the inner mandala, they are there. And you feel a great longing to now radically simplify your life for some time and devote yourself single-pointedly to practice. Well, then I only rejoice. And if I can continue to help you, I'm happy to do so. You know? So we don't all have the, let's say, just the vocation, the calling to be full-time yogi right now. Right. But I would say, insofar as our heart moves in this direction, we all have the opportunity to be full-time bodhisattvas right now. Because a bodhisattva may be a mother taking care of her children. And that's her full-time job. And she can do it as a bodhisattva. Which means every time she's taking care of her children, she's engaging in bodhisattva activity. It could be a nun running, you know, running a nunnery or helping teaching meditation to prison inmates. And that's what she's doing. That's, that's her bodhisattva flow there. It could be a person taking care of the elderly. It could be anything. Any occupation that is not by nature injurious is an avenue for bodhisattva action. Right. So we look on that level. Hedonic suffering. And in terms of the mental afflictions, the mental affliction that is most toxic, most immediately harmful, manifestly terribly harmful, is hatred. Is hatred. Gives rise to so much unnecessary suffering. So if we ask the question, why couldn't we be all free of suffering and a cause of suffering? Well, for starters, we really need to do something about hatred. We need to alleviate that. In our own minds, whenever there's hatred towards any sentient being, whoever it is, from, let's take the, the icon of evil, from Hitler on all the way, from, from him at the bottom and all the way up to the most sublime people, beings you know of, excluding no one, no hatred for anyone. They're all sentient beings, they all have Buddha nature. So that's it. There's nothing added to that. That's it. No hatred for any sentient being ever. If you are, then you've stopped practicing Dharma in that moment. Right? But then as we ask that question deeper, we start asking questions that so maybe not so many millions of people are asking. Why couldn't all sentient beings be free of the suffering of change and its underlying cause? Which a lot of people call the good life. Right? Rooted in attachment, and it is, frankly, let's call a spade a spade, self-centered attachment. Self-centered attachment. Why couldn't all beings be free of that? The 85, for example, who, who own half the wealth of the planet. And want more. The wealthy nations. The United States, the last I heard, 5% of the human population, we consume 30% of the natural resources of the planet. Uh, and then other countries would like to emulate that. So how's the math going to work out? You know? And that's just one country. I don't think England's any better. China doesn't want to be any better. China wants to just do America better with more. You know, <laughs> you know, Puranic devouring of the planet. So that how could we be free? Well, now we're asking a question that not so many people are asking because it doesn't relate to the growth of your gross domestic product. It actually has to do with being content with a lovely or gross domestic product, and maybe you think maybe we should tone it down a bit, that we're not devouring, consuming so much. Right? So for that one, really, then I'm going to be a, a fanatical evangelist and say, raise the banner of eudaimonia under any banner you like. Socrates, Augustine, Buddha, anyone. It's being taught in the wisdom traditions all over the world for centuries by philosophers, nowadays by some scientists, by religious people all over the planet. Eudaimonia, there's another vision of the good life that doesn't have to do with acquisition and consumption, with wealth, power, and prestige. It's actually an authentic way of happiness, type of happiness, and it's not competitive. So if I have more, then Marta doesn't have any less. Unlike the hedonic, pretty much anything, if I have more, most likely somebody else has less. Right? So to envision 
How could that be? Why couldn't all sentient beings be free of the suffering of change? Well, they could if they had a clear vision from, the, from, the, from preschool on. Little kids can't understand this. It's not that hard. You know, the joy of giving versus the joy of receiving. They're different. And little kids can understand that. It's not hard. And the joy of giving is eudaimonic, and the joy of receiving is hedonic. And neither one's bad, but they are different. And so there, the mental affliction is clearly craving, greed, attachment. And that's one that has to go. And then you go to the deepest level of suffering. Why couldn't all sentient beings be free of pervasive existential suffering? Why couldn't they be? And we know the corresponding mental affliction is delusion. And therefore, we could all be free. But only if we find wisdom. But happily, the wisdom is everywhere. This wisdom is everywhere. I really, I mean, Padmasambhava himself said it. You know, that whether it's the Hindu tradition, whether it's the Shravakayana, and every, the great perfection is everywhere. Dig deep enough. Go deep enough into Taoism, and you find the great perfection. Go deep enough into Christianity. You find Nicholas of Cusa, John Scotus Eriugena. You find the great perfection. Hinduism, Judaism. Go deep in the Kabbalah. It's there. I've seen it. Go deep enough. Go deep enough into science. Come in. You'll come up on quantum cosmology, and just give it a, a, pra- a skillful means, a way to actually implement that as a view that you can actually realize, and then you've just bumped into the great perfection. You know, it's found in philosophy. It's found in science. It's found in all the great religions. Go deep enough. So, as His Holiness, he's, he's been saying this for years, when he's traveling all over the West, all over the West, which means all over the world, because keep on going West, West. It's you know West all the way around. He said so often in public settings, here he is, this simple Buddhist monk, and he said, I don't encourage you to change faith. I don't encourage you to become Buddhist. If you're Christian, go deeper into Christianity. It's better. Be simpler for you. If you're Hindu, be Hindu. If you're Christian, Jewish, be Jewish. Go deeper. Don't try to jump out of that boat into another boat. Make more complexity, more difficulty. Go deeper where you already are. He meant it. And then there's some people, like myself, had no choice. There was no other boat. All the other boats were sinking. So I only jumped in the only boat that seemed to be floating. And that happened to be, for me, Buddhism. But that was just my boat. You know? But that was the only one that was still I could jump into and feel I wasn't drowning. And science is a boat. When it's approached with wisdom, with the open-mindedness, science at its best is magnificent, always has been, is now, and will be. Science at its best. Open-minded, self-critical, benevolent, compassionate. That's a boat. That's a boat. Scientific materialism is not a boat. That's a Titanic. That one's going down. It is going down. Its worldview, its hedonic values, and its consumer-driven way of life. They're all going down. But the problem is right now they're dragging down human civilization. Because human civilization in 2014 is a Titanic. That's just the way it is, you know. That's not gloom and doom. It's just kind of like, open your eyes, look. Look what's happening to economies, to the environment, and so forth and so on. Look at all the extremism, religious extremism, political extremism, and so forth. Look how much hatred there is, how much greed there is, how much delusion there is. And it's driven by not just one thing, of course, the religious fundamentalists who are not scientific materialists. You know, out of the out of the what out of the pot and into the fire, whatever, it's just one more form of delusion. But scientific materialism is dragging human civilization down with this emphasis on hedonism and consumer consumerism. And so human civilization right now has hit an iceberg. And we're going down. So final point here is I think all of us on this planet, each of us individually, we have one primary responsibility. Save the planet. Save the planet by being a good mother. We're not here to help. We're a waste of space, and we don't have any right to eat. Let's meditate.
Ungoge ukenupsamsam, emagesan dumbona, yamsen shokim mudubnye, emajune shisuta, kodu kando mambuko, yeki jesu datuki, singe lapshi shiksusu. Guru Pema Siddhi Hung Hung Agi Yuki Nupsam Sam Pema Gesa Dombola Yamsen Shoki Mudubnye Pema June Shesuta Kodu Kando Mambuko Keki Jesu Datuki Jinge lapshi shaksusu guru pema siddhi hum hum oge yuke nupsam sam pema gesa dombola yamsen choki mudunye pema june shesuta kodu kando mambuko Eki Jesu Datuki Jingi Lakshi Shaksusu Guru Pema Siddhi
you wish to, wish to switch postures, please do, do so now. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states as an act of compassion for yourself. Then we venture into the meditative cultivation of great compassion, Mahakaruna, and with the question, why couldn't all sentient beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering? Bring all your intelligence, your memory, your creativity, imagination to bear, and tend first to, hedon- <laughs> to hedonic suffering, blatant suffering.
Turn your attention to the suffering of change. attend to the pervasive existential suffering and the possibility of freedom. then arouse the aspiration. May we all be free, free of suffering, the whole range of suffering and its underlying causes, which ultimately do come to hatred, greed, and delusion. But as you arouse this aspiration, yearn for the freedom from suffering of all levels, the blatant suffering, the suffering of change, pervasive existential suffering. And if you wish, you may imagine or visualize with each in-breath the darkness of suffering and its causes being drawn away from those who are afflicted lightening their burden, clearing the air, being siphoned into this incandescent orb of light at your heart and extinguished there without trace. You may focus specifically on individuals, areas of the globe, species, where there is such suffering. Or you may simply let your awareness expand in all directions, May all beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And breath by breath, imagine it becoming so.
and then arouse the resolve, if you will. I shall do so. I shall free all sentient beings from suffering and the causes of suffering. And here, of course, you need to radically reassess your sense of who is the I. Descend to your depths with pure vision, right down to your ground, from which this becomes a realistic aspiration, a realistic resolve. But as you arouse this resolve, again use your intelligence, use your understanding, have a plan. How might you do so? You already know the answers. You must become a Buddha. No one else can do this. So what's your plan? Make the resolve, but back it up. With each outbreath, imagine cascades of incandescent radiant white light emanating in all directions, banishing the darkness, dispelling the darkness of suffering, of greed, hatred, and delusion, filling the world with light and the relief from suffering and its causes.
And finally, if you will, call upon the blessings of your, of your gurus and the enlightened ones to enable you to fulfill this resolve, this promise. You may imagine with each in-breath the light of blessings coming in from all sides, converging it upon your body, transforming your body into transparent, luminous body of light. With every out-breath, imagine the light flowing out in all directions. And imagine all beings becoming free.
Release all appearances and let your awareness rest in its own nature. So I need to correct one slip of the tongue, and that is 85% 85 people do not own one half of the world's resources. They just own as much as the poor 3.5 billion people on the planet, which is not half. That's not exactly good news. But no, they don't own half the resources. Enjoy your day. <laughs>